0: What does it mean to be a Māori man? To be a Māori man, in my view, is to merge yourself into the world that prevails, and that world is a global world, uh, but to never forget to use your Māori tikanga to give you strength to merge into that global
1: world. That's Po Timira, Professor of Tikanga at Waikato University, who we'll hear more from soon. What does a man look like? Is he tall, strong and well-composed? Cos I'm none of those. Kia ora, I'm Glenn McConnell.
2: And I'm John Daniel. This is He'll Be Right, a six-part podcast series from Stuff and Bird of Paradise Productions about what it means to be a modern man in, Aotearoa.
1: It's a a in this episode, it's all about mā Ranga maori Māori. We're talking about tikanga, Māori genders, and we'll meet actor and musician Troy Kingi. But first, John, it was actually your idea to dedicate an entire episode of this series to Māori masculinity. You said that when you came back from living in France a few years ago, you saw a real change in attitudes here.
2: Yeah, growing up in the 80s, it wasn't very bicultural, or at least not the part I was growing up in. You know, at school it was like New Zealand was discovered in 1642 by Abel Tasman.
1: Right, so don't worry about the other people who were here for a few hundred years, they don't
2: count. And I think that level of ignorance has changed, or is changing, but I'm hoping to learn something here myself. I don't have a lot to do with Maori culture on a day-to-day basis, but I remember going on a rugby trip in 1991, I think. An age-grade team. We were at the airport and I was with another mate who was also a student. One of our teammates was eating some food and we were both looking hungrily at it. And he said, have some. And we were like, no way, couldn't do that. He was quite insistent. He got quite annoyed, actually. But there was no way I was far too uptight to eat someone else's food and my mate was the same. And our teammate rolled his eyes and went, you Pākehā are weird. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe we are the weird ones. So you mean
1: maybe Pākehā have cultural issues of their own?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I I don't want to draw too much out of my inability to share food, but I think we've seen that the whole thing around men being strong and successful and self-reliant can cause problems. That ability to share, to think about everyone else as well as just yourself and at the same time be cared about by others who share something deep with you. I think that sounds really healthy, but I don't know if it's a real part of Māori culture, or is it just a romantic view?
1: Let's be clear. There are so many different realities for Māori men. In this episode, I spoke to Māori men all over the country to work out what exactly it means to be a Māori man. I'll be honest, one of the only common threads
2: here will be contradictions. Just like anybody, right? But what's the framework for Māori men? Is it different to us Pākehā? Well, the good news is Māori
1: have some clear guidelines. We talk about tīkanga, essentially rules to live and act by. So I travelled down to Kirikiriroa, Hamilton, to meet Pō Temara from Tuhoi, the professor of tīkanga you heard at the start of this episode. I wanted to learn about the tīkanga of gender and masculinity, but every rule came
0: with a few exceptions. There's always ticking around gender. There is always the understanding that there are responsibilities for the two genders. Uh, there's responsibility for men, responsibility for women, and the way that those two work and how they are harmonized. And tikanga also allows a culture to change. Tikanga is also about change and how those things that you may have thought uh, was pure tikanga and because of tikanga start to change and become accepted because it is tikka as part of tikanga to do so.
1: Tikka literally means right or correct. So tikanga is the correct
0: way of doing things. Increasingly things are starting to merge. For instance, uh, masculinity. When we think about masculinity, Look, my son, who's a great hunter, great horseman, always uh, doesn't sleep when he goes out hunting. He's also into the gym. <laughs> and, yep, many Māori are into that sort of thing. And they use it as part of their development in tikanga.
2: Post-73, a tuhoi man who grew up, literally, in the bush.
0: It was in the middle of a forest between uh, Maunga Pōhatu and Rātoki. And uh, we lived uh, in a little clearing that my grandfather had cleared. And, you know, the, the romantic uh, house without a floor, the roof made out of bark, tree bark, kānuka bark. And that's where I spent the first years of my life, coming out to in 1954, was civilization coming out of civilization, and yet there wasn't much in Rata But compared to the first seven years of my life, it was civilization. For him, connecting
1: with Te Uruwera, hunting, and living off the land is intrinsically linked to his identity. It's part of his wairua and Maori It's what makes him a man. I'm from Te Ateawa an iwi which travelled south from Taranaki and set up in Wellington, and across the strait in Tō Taranui, Marlborough. Like Po, I was lucky enough to grow up on the Tūranga Waiwai of my iwi, one of its traditional territories, or rohi, of Wellington and the Marlborough sounds. But we're unusual in that way. Most Māori now live outside of their rohi, away from their marae, and growing up in a mostly Pākehā city like Wellington, is a lot different to the towns where Māori culture and tikanga
2: is the norm. So what kind of difference does that make to Māori men? If they can't get to their own marae, are they missing out on an important part of their lives?
1: They're probably missing out on a sense of connection. But I don't get to my marae in Picton as much as I used to, and it doesn't feel like the end of the world, because I know I'll get back at some point. So the link is still alive for me, In a sense, marae can be like churches. Some are certainly mostly ceremonial. But they're way more than that. They can be the centre of Māori life. They're a place where people can come together for anything that's seen as good for the community. There's gardening. My cousins have been at our marae for the school holidays. There's big political hui, and then moments like tangi or weddings. Marae bring a sense of pride, and that's why there's such a focus on men and women being able to fulfil their roles. Everyone has a part to play, so as not to let
0: the marae down. You see, I I did say that it's not about whakapapa anymore, it's not about genealogy anymore, but it is about hands-on, it is about participation, it is about reigniting your fires and starting your fires and keeping those fires burning on the back burner. When I'm here and in the places that I've lived, I always make sure that I go back to Ritahuna. And they see me coming and they say, oh, here's that noble from Victoria University. But I make my contribution. What am I doing there? I'm ensuring that when I die, that people have a reason to be at my tangi and not to moan about someone not knowing their marae until they are dead. And that is often the comments made by people uh, who have kept the marae burning. Now that uh, you are dead, you find your way back to your marae. You know you have a marae at, at last.
1: Connection is huge, but as I mentioned, also hard for many Māori. Poe says his own EB, Tuhoi is no exception. They've built their own marae in Auckland for Tuhoi expats. So you've got some communities where it's full-blown Māori tanga. Te ao Māori is the norm, and then there's a spectrum going right to Māori who find themselves in communities and positions where they have to live entirely by Pākehā tikanga. And then there's the gangs as well, which seem to co-opt Māori tanga for their own fairly toxic view of Māori masculinity. There are a lot of different Māori realities. Poe says that's not surprising.
0: You will gravitate to something that is meaningful for you. And yeah, gangs are part of that. Uh, but there are more Maoris out of gangs than are in gangs, if we do the research. Uh, so every Maori in Auckland is not in a gang. Of course, yeah. Uh, but what is happening to the majority of those Maori who are not in gangs? They are living and they are making, forming their relationships outside of their tribal areas, and it is of necessity that uh, they've done that. You know, Glenn for. Many Māori who go back to their uh, marae, to to where their parents are from, to where their grandparents are from, for them it is not a good experience. Why is that?
1: There are so many expectations. I can't speak for everyone. But as a kid I did spend quite a bit of time at the marae. It's a place I normally feel comfortable. Still, I often feel a bit out of place. I hate getting up in front of groups of people. I'm not a fan of doing haka in front of 100 people. I don't like public speaking. The speeches at Marae are said to be in the domain of Tūmā toinga, the god of war. So it's all quite gendered, and spiritual too. For big events, you want a full paipai, pai, the speaker's bench. It's a show of strength, respect and mana to have plenty of men able to it or Māori. These are men who are great performers, fluent speakers, able to draw on knowledge about whakapapa, contemporary issues, maybe even make people laugh. They're funny, smart, intelligent, but also fearless.
2: I guess those are traditional markers of masculinity in Māori spaces like marae, hui and weddings. But if you're not filling those roles, then is that an issue? By not speaking te reo, to a level where you can fight kōrero, do you feel less of a man?
1: I definitely can't fight kōrero now, but I'm probably too young to do that anyway. Of course I want to be able to, but maybe I never will, which is a bit depressing. It's also about more than just speaking. It's about learning and holding on to knowledge, like whakapapa, which is about connections, genealogy, and how everyone and everything is kind of linked in some way. But for others there are still roles to play. Someone has to get the kai. Being near the water, te Ate Awa love kai moana. People are constantly asking me when I'll learn to dive. Crayfish is often at the centre of tables, but look, I don't eat meat. I'll never learn to dive, and that scene is pretty unusual. And honestly, I'm sick of being asked about when it's going to happen. But according to Poe, whose sons all learnt to hunt, being able to perform these tasks is a real marker of masculinity.
0: I was brought up uh, mostly by uh, women, by my grandmother and auntie. But you know, uh, whenever my grandfather was around and my uncles were around, I thoroughly enjoyed and looked forward to when they were around because they did things that I wanted to do, that I understood, that were, that came naturally to me. In other words, they were hard men, hard. <laughs> Uh, horse riders, uh, cow wranglers. Uh, we're not talking about just ordinary cows. We're talking about cows that had become wild. And they'd, uh, these guys would hunt them down and uh, have fun either taking them down or shooting them. So um, when I think about them and think about the uncles who became, they all emulated their their parents, uh, in, in my case, my grandfather, uh, And they all loved horses. They all loved uh, sharpening knives. They loved guns. They loved uh, uh, making sure that uh, horses were well kept and uh, they loved being around dogs. (laughs) Do
1: you think that's part of of Maori men and and being able to stick it out in in the country?
0: It depends where you're from. Um, And we're from Ruatahuna and there is an expectation that we would be hunters, an expectation that we would know the bush.
1: I wrote a story recently and I was talking to rangatahi Māori who are growing up in cities now, you know, completely separate from, you know, marae and and family back, you know, generations potentially from their kind of tūranga waiwai. How do you think that's changing?
0: Oh, it's changed. It's changed because of location. It's changed because Māori now uh, live mostly in the um, cities and exposed to those things that were not part of my generation's uh, lives. And uh, we had to make things work for ourselves and figure out how to do things.
2: To be fair, it sounds like Poe was chosen from an early age to be special. So he has this sense of duty around knowing the old ways and passing that knowledge on.
1: Yeah, he was actually brought up by his grandparents, raised by them so he could learn and be surrounded by traditional knowledge, while his siblings stayed with their parents. My great-grandparents were similar, focusing on my granduncle's education and also trusting him with family land. As the eldest son, the expectation was that you'd look after your whānau and carry a lot of that traditional knowledge. But in the end, while it offered him a deep education, it didn't help Poe's relationship with his siblings.
0: They think differently, they act differently, they didn't do well at all. Many of my siblings have one, two, three, four. Four of them have passed away, and the youngest are still alive. And there was not that relationship, sibling relationship between us. I know that that they are my uh, brothers and sisters, but there wasn't a close bond between us. How can there be when we were in two different camps? So their thing is is, is quite different. In fact, Mm -hmm. I can only stand a short period around them before I'm looking for people who think like me and um, can't wait to get back to my university, to a culture that I understand and that motivates me.
2: How does Poe help others negotiate that meeting of what he calls the global world and tikanga?
0: He's often called on to help
1: others make sense of the modern world through a tikanga framework. And one example is with the Defence Force, which now calls itself an iwi, Nati tu Matonga after the god of war. Poe was asked to advise them about forming the Siwi, but he had one issue. tuma is a masculine god, but women are in the army, in the tribe of war. For the record, he thinks
0: women should be in the army. Now, tuma is looking after the male
2: soldier, but who's looking after the female soldier? It's interesting that the defense force used Maori culture in this way, is it playing into the stereotype of a warrior gene, of Māori men being aggressive, natural soldiers?
1: I don't think it's that cynical. Any move beyond the British military system to becoming a bicultural establishment has to be a good thing. And many Māori are in the army, including many Māori women. Māori and Pākehā and Nati tu matoinga, as the Defence Force is now called, talk about a sense of belonging which has come from this new tribe of war. It seems to be working well. After all, all a Niwi is, and ever
0: has been, is a group of people you can rely on. Tikanga is fluid. Yeah. Tikanga is there to guide the way that you live, the way that you behave at a certain time and a certain period. The way that uh, we were brought up to view the way that you behave and the way that you conduct your lives is not acceptable in today's climate and the sensitivities... Of today. They are not acceptable. And yet the dreamers talk about the good old days. Well, here I am uh, talking about where I grew up and people ask me, I mean, we went down there just uh, a few weeks ago by helicopter to traverse the places that I grew up in and to make a, a television program about it. They asked me, would you love to come back here? No. <laughs> no, I don't. It sounded really romantic to be brought up in this house without a floor and a a fire in the middle of the house and uh, sleeping on on straw beds, uh, not straw beds, on on fern beds. And um, people are amazed by that and are romanticised by that. But when they ask me, would you like, no, I I wouldn't. Uh, Look at how I'm dressed.
1: (laughs) So when we meet, Poe looks like he might be about to head off to a wedding. He's in a crisp black suit, complete with a bow tie. He's a hunter who talks about the importance of men keeping up their hardy provider role, while at the same time relishing
2: the role he has as a suited professor. Those are both quite traditional roles, though, and there is a sense of tension between some of those traditions and modern gender politics, right?
1: Yeah, one of Poe's Tuhui cousins, Peter Taimana, has been questioning the ceremonial roles of men and women. Peter has a fluid identity. He also goes by the name Kohini Rako Kirunga to embody his feminine side.
2: He's really challenging Māori tradition here and argues that Māori society had always been comfortable with gender fluidity but became conservative because of Pākehā religion. Some
1: of the great Māori legends talk about same-sex relationships, remarriage and woman rangatira. It's hard to know how widespread that acceptance was. It's
3: all about letting go of the fear, and learning when to act and do the fai cordial. Now, I can do it as a male. I, I'm comfortable going to the marae as a male or a female. And everyone in who knows that. <laughs> and some of them are coming to accept that now. Um, but I wouldn't bully myself through and come across like a whakahihi or something. I'm not that type of person. I would remain humble. Out of respect, not only for myself, but for my ancestors that have been and gone before me. There is a place for males and there is a place for women to do their respective roles as in Paikōrero and in Karanga. My mother's already seen me doing Karanga ever since I was a little kid. Karanga is traditionally a woman's role, so I asked
1: Peter how he learnt to do it in the first place.
3: Ah, how I learned was by listening and observing others on the marae, my elders. And I had this thing about women's role. (laughs) I appreciated what they did. And then I thought, oh... Oh, the means! I used to look at our men and say, Oh, gosh, that's not me And I thought, that's all heavy stuff. And um, I enjoyed doing the karanga and watching them doing it because of the emotions that were coming out. But not only that, it was beyond those emotions you could hear a sacred voice. The sacred voice of your ancestors coming through and channeling through their, their tongues, I performed both of them, the male element and the female element, because those were my strengths. Waihata, karakia, whaikorero, and the karanga, and the whare mate. I'm allowed to do that.
2: When we met Peter, he talked about how, throughout his life, he has met resistance. He's received his share of hate for challenging the status quo, but he has fought to keep expressing himself the way he chooses.
1: For him, it's not just about who has a right to speak or stand at certain times. He says everyone has a masculine and
3: feminine side, and we need to learn to express that. I must be the only one that knows about this, because not many people think about these things that you're asking, where we express those type of emotions or those types of feelings to bring out our masculine and feminine side. Now... I know heaps of tomboys out there, heaps of women out there, doing the haka, and the male side comes out while well, they're doing the haka. So do the men. So just because you got a penis, it doesn't mean to say you can't express your feminine side, or well, just because you're a woman, they don't express the male. It's there. It's real. So... We come to a place and a space where we come to terms with acknowledging that within ourselves. We don't expect anyone else to acknowledge it, so long as the individual themselves accept that and recognise that and acknowledge that. Because that all comes with the word self-acceptance. You'd think, having listened to
1: Poe talk about how tikanga changes with time to fit with the needs of the iwi, that he might have been on board with that.
2: But I don't think that's the case.
1: Do you think that's
0: tikanga? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. No, it isn't. And I can see, I know who, who you're talking about, Pita. Uh, I can see the trouble that Pita is in. Um, am I a man or am I a woman? And can I do the two roles? No, you can't. No, you can't. It's not ticker to do that. It's not tikka to do that. Not in my book, anyway. If you're going to, to, to do whaikororo, yeah, Faikoru. But is it good for a man to go to? Kodunga? No, no, it isn't. Because it is to do with, Masculinity, it is to do with the gods of our people. It is, it is to do with the, uh, the philosophy of our people. Everything about our people, if the gods deemed it right, then it ought to be right. Yeah, he was pretty passionate about that. So which side of this would
1: you
2: come down on?
1: Uh, it depends on different marae. It's not for me to tell others how to run their show. I'd be quite happy to see Peter doing that. Often, women on my marae, who I know are better qualified and can speak better reo, don't want to take on those traditional, ceremonial male roles because they're women, which feels like a slight shame. From my perspective, people are just people. And look, Peter is using whakapapa, looking back at tradition, ancestry, and legend to find his place in the world. Sure, he's making his own rules along the way, but Poe says
2: that's what you're meant to do. And remember, in our third episode on gender, we talked to Scout Barbara Evans in Dunedin. They're Takatapui, transgender, and said it was affirming and encouraging to be able to look back and see legends where tekatapui played prominent roles.
1: Yeah, for Scout Māori, culture really helped build confidence in their own identity. But then tikanga can seem very rigid. There are clear roles on marae, and for the most part, people respect that. They like the tradition of it all. Although men do the Cor, look around most marae and Māori organisations, there are a lot of women leading them, and I've seen a few kuia start whiter to put an end to speeches they're sick of, too.
2: Grappling with tradition is always going to be a thing for men trying to understand the best way to be in their world. And the most obvious role models are fathers.
4: Mūra Billy, i mūra Billy, turn it, turn it down. Keep it the powder, with all the power, the radical sun. Ko Matawawra Te Maunga, ko Roto Iti Te Roto, ko Hinekura Te Murahai, ko, uh, ko Te Aroa Te Waka, ko Te Aroa Te Iwi Hoki. And on my mum's side, she's from Ngāti Hau, Ngāti Wai, Ngāti Manu up north and now Marae up there is Fakapara, so stretching the, the width of New Zealand pretty much.
1: <laughs> Troy Kingi is a musician, actor and father of five tamariki.
4: I'd say that being a father is my main job and because of where we're situated up in the middle of nowhere and Kirikiri, I don't have any work there. So I am away a lot, but I feel like the kids understand now that that's their dad's mahi is, you know,
2: abroad. Troy's been in Kiwi classics like Hunt for the Wilder People and played Weepu and The Kick for TV. He's also the winner of the Tate Music Prize for 2020 for his Roots album Holy Colony Burning Acres. It was the second of his planned 10 albums in 10 different genres over 10 years.
1: I met Troy just after he released the third album, inspired by the search for his father, who went missing when he was 20 years old. His parents separated when he was young, but he was close to his dad. Then, one day, he just disappeared. The police couldn't find any trace of him. He hasn't made contact with anyone
4: for 15 years. Whoa, super close. I suppose as far as musically... Him and my whole kingi Fano actually are quite musical, so unconsciously I suppose I was being inspired all the time or kind of nudged in that direction without even knowing it. It's, it's, it's in our blood.
1: Troy said he felt pretty lucky to have two dads, a stepdad and his own dad, and now a father-in-law too. He says i have inspired him in different ways.
4: Actually a big role model of mine was my stepfather. Yeah, um, He's a policeman and um, he's been there since I was super young, four or five years old, so... Yeah, these father figures, my also my father-in-law, beautiful man. I just look at the way he holds himself and just how he moves forward in the world, he's like... Nothing stresses him. He's able to manage any problem, you know, through thinking and and not stressing out about it. So I like to think that I kind of take some of that on board and I and I kind of um, do that myself.
2: Troy has always been musical. He was writing music in high school and first involved in Kapahaka at the very traditional all boys Māori boarding school. Teyote College in Hawke's Bay. His tastes changed a bit when he went to a state school in Kitikeri when he was in his mid teens. I remember walking in well, I didn't know until
4: my my old bass player told me he remembers me walking in for the first day. I had my hair in a top knot with a heru in it, a moldy comb, with the Kitty backpack and my uniform and bare feet walking into school and he's like, Oh my God, it's a real moldy. But sure enough, by the end of that. Yeah, I had assimilated, I had joined a a rock band, um, cut my hair, punky style. I felt like I had completely changed. Māori
1: are very much part of the global world. I mean, Troy got into rock and just released a funk album. He makes reggae too. Like so many other younger Māori, he draws on a broad range of global cultural influences. It's not just about ethnicity,
4: although that's important too. I did feel like I was one of the odd ones when I did turn up, like, kind of out of place. And one of the big things, I suppose, was at Teote, there was this big thing on, like, hierarchy. When you first come to school, you got to respect your the elders, which were the seniors and stuff like that. So you'd never... You wouldn't even talk to them, really. There was like a little bit of fear. So you had like, yes, no. There was no, yeah, nah, nah, whatever. So going from that to this other school where there was like uh, young kids, like 13, 14 year olds, like swearing at the older kids, I'm like, oh my God, would we'll never do that. So it was a big culture shock, but I feel like I, I gained a lot from both worlds. Troy says he didn't mind moving
1: to Kitty Kitty High School at the time. He was able to chill out a bit. In his Māori world, the expectations were high. He was aiming for excellence, and that's what was expected. But in the mainstream, well, he was a bit freer.
4: If anything, I felt like there was no pressure. Because there was lacking in tradition, I suppose, there was no pressure to uphold anything. You could just be a teenager. You know, you could just experience stuff. We At school, all we had was a basketball court at, at Te Ote College. And now you had the whole world. You could go out to town and you know, hang out with your mates and go get something to eat and stuff. So, yeah, I feel like there was less expectation and less stress because there was nothing to uphold, really.
2: So upholding the mana that comes with tradition brings about expectations and responsibilities. How do those expectations sit with you, Glenn?
1: Although Troy and I had far less traditional upbringings in Poe, we talk about similar feelings of responsibility – to learn, to uphold tikanga and whakapapa.
2: But is that like a weight? Is it being forced on you, or is it something you want to do?
1: There's never been anyone telling me I must learn, but I want this culture to thrive, and it involves work. Learning te reo isn't easy when most people speak English – but it's a gateway to my own whakapapa and culture. It's not just about knowing who your great-grandparents are, learning how everyone's connected and how your iwi came to be. Marae are a symbol of that, where people come together and also their carvings tell stories about our ancestors. But what would the future be without people doing the mahi and, as they say, keeping the fires burning on our marae?
4: I'm actually really worried about that, not just for me, but for everybody like... I don't know when it was back in the 70s or 80s when, you know, people from the rural where the marae are ended up moving to town to have work and stuff. And there was like no one left to look after the marae. And as the years have gone and generations have gone, it's just gotten worse. Looking at my own marae, there's not that many people to stand. You know, like when our Komats was passed away, who's the next line that's going to be there to speak on our behalf?
1: Is it? Important to you for your, your own kids to be
4: kind of connected to their hapū, iwi, For and sure, marae. for sure. Not just Māori, but I feel like everyone needs to know where they come from in order to know where they're going. And knowing your marae, knowing where you're from, your, your maunga, your iwi, your hapū, all of that things, only makes it easier for Māori, you know? Being a Pākehā, what can you connect to?
2: It's a good question. I can't speak for everyone, but I guess the obvious answer is family, although that can be complicated for any number of reasons. My parents divorced when I was about two, and I didn't see much of my father growing up, but he's always been into genealogy, family history. I guess that's the Pākehā version of papa," but it's less satisfying in the sense that unless your family has been living in the same place for a very long time, you don't have the roots in the landscape. My family have been here for five or six generations, but lived all over the show, more Wellington than anywhere else, I guess, but... For me at least, there's no strong sense of, this here is our place. As a boy, genealogy felt like dead people in obscure parts of Wales and England, who had no real relationship to me. But as I get older, kids of my own, and maybe closer to becoming an ancestor myself, I'm starting to see the interest, I guess. But still, it doesn't feel as rich as the Māori version. You were saying to me that your moanga, your mountain, is Taranaki. If you're on a flight from Auckland to Wellington, you see it out the window quite a lot. And when I see it, I think something like, that's beautiful. And maybe, if I'm feeling patriotic, what a beautiful country. But I guess you feel something different.
1: Is it weird that I always try to sit on the side of the plane that will see it? All the iwi of Taranaki talk about the maunga and their pepiha, even those of us from Wellington. Flying past, it's exciting seeing that mountain we talk about so often, but also thinking about how much Mount Taranaki has seen It reminds me of the history of our people, like the Parihaka movement. My iwi fought wars to be able to stay under that mountain when the Crown wanted more Pākehā farms. It's seen some stuff. And in our legends, it's even a mystical being with its own story. After all, Taranaki is a volcano capable of doing some
2: major damage. With his own family, Troy talks about trying to be a different sort of dad than how his father or grandfather's generation would have been.
4: Well, I don't know. I'm not super old, but I've definitely seen. I remember back in the days where I don't know. You just never went to men for problems. You always went to mums or or your aunties or stuff like that. And I never really think about it, but you know, your kids, my kids, come to me. And like when we're doing interviews like this, I think, well, actually, yeah, it is different because they are coming to me, and people do go to their dads now and. I don't know what the mind shift is or if it's just because of social media and there's more talk about it. It's a good thing. Did you used to go to your dad's as a kid if you had issues? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I didn't. I don't know if I used to go to anyone if I had issues, to be honest. And maybe that's that old masculine thing. I don't know. Um, Even when you're a kid, you're, you're made to think, don't cry or you're not tough. But I think it's it's tough to be to be able to show your emotion and, and share that stuff, and especially being a father, you want to be able to to be approachable and open so that your kids want to talk to you when when they have problems and stuff like that. So I think my view on masculinity is, yeah. Being open, and that's way more staunch than being staunch.
2: <laughs> so that generational shift in the expectations around masculinity that we've seen elsewhere, that seems to be playing out in Māoridom as well.
1: While hopefully keeping the stuff that really matters, there are constant debates happening across town Māori about where to next. That means gender roles will change as iwi adapt to what their people need. But at the same time, there's a strong and important push to protect parts of our culture which have been sheltered from colonisation. Next time, we're going to be talking about Samoan tattooing and rites of passage and how they change over time.
2: We're also going to talk to Glenn's mum, Helen, and find out how she brought him up and how she teaches young children now.
1: Thing. A thing. He'll be right is a stuff and bird of paradise production. It was written and produced by me, Glenn McConnell, and John Daniel. Noel McCarthy was the associate producer. The music's from Anthony Tonnen, and this episode features music from Troy Kingy.
2: Editing and sound design by Andre Upston. Carol Hirschfeld is the commissioning editor for stuff, and the executive producer was Patrick Crutzen. This series was made possible by funding from New Zealand On Air.
1: For more from this series, go to stuff.co.nz forward slash That's H-E-L-L be right. There you can listen to all the episodes and find links for subscribing on your favourite podcast app, plus a series of essays. Also, Snapchat guide Tom Sainsbury has made a brilliant series of short videos about modern masculinity. They're all on the website too.